On this episode of This Week in Linux, we have a massive show for you this week with a ton of great news. The Raspberry Pi 4 has, has arrived, Ubuntu reverts their decision on 32-bit packages, Valve issues an official statement about their plans for future Linux support, which is reiterating their commitment to Linux, Valve also launched the highly anticipated, wallet-frightening Steam Summer Sale, Mozilla announced a big update to their Android browser offerings with a new Firefox preview, Mozilla also announced a new way to combat advertising trackers called Track This. Just in time for the Raspberry Pi 4, Kodi 18.3 was released this week. I recently was acquainted with some really cool projects called DrawPile for online collaborative drawing, RPCS3, a Linux emulator for the PlayStation 3, and there's also some weird stuff from Microsoft that they're doing, and let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the positive with a new central location for blogs from the Linux kernel developers and a new Humble Bundle. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNU's. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, load balancers, integrated firewalls, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for one month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with a $50 credit for a whole month by going to do.co slash tux. And again, thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. A first in the show this week is some awesome news from the Raspberry Pi Foundation, and that is they have announced the Raspberry Pi 4, actually multiple versions of the Pi 4. I actually did a prediction this past year when they, because there was a lot of rumors saying that the Pi would not be coming out, and I predicted that the Pi 4 would be coming out. Total random guess. But I happen to be right. So I'm happy about that. Anyway, I'm also happy about the fact that the Pi 4 is out and it's got a lot of cool improvements, like a lot of hardware improvements, which is fantastic. So, for example, there used to be a couple uh, USB 2 uh, ports. Now there are not only USB 2 ports, there's also USB 3 ports and also a uh, gigabit Ethernet, which used to be like a max at 100 megabit Ethernet. Now it's a gigabit Ethernet, which is fantastic. It allows you to do all kinds of stuff for throughput and bandwidth that you normally couldn't. You could even use it for a router if you wanted to, or a switch if you wanted to. Um, and on top of that, they they have added, uh, they switched it from now, instead of having just one HDMI port, they now have two micro HDMI ports. That's kind of weird that they're doing micro instead of regular, but it allows them to have two on the same board, which is makes sense, and that's pretty cool. It also, these ports are capable of up to 4K. Very cool. And they've upgraded the power supply system from micro USB to USB Type-C, which is another awesome benefit. And they've improved the uh, processor to have a, uh, not. it's been upgraded to a core a quad-core Cortex-A72 ARM V8 64-bit system-on-a-chip processor with a clock speed of 1.5 gigahertz. 
Like that's that's actually not that much of a difference in the sense that it was a 1.4 gigahertz, but now it's 1.5 gigahertz. But at the same time, it is a much improved version of the the Cortex uh, chip. So even though it doesn't seem like it's that much as far as the numbers, it is still much better. They've also uh, improved the RAM. Let's just go to the RAM. There's a ton of stuff as well, but I want to talk about the biggest thing is absolutely the RAM. So the entry-level Raspberry Pi 4 is $35, which is the signature price of the Raspberry Pi, and that is a 1 gigabyte RAM uh, card, or basically small computer. And this this Pi at 1 gigabytes is the is what it used to have previously. There was a 1 gigabyte for the Pi, Pi 3 as well. However, they've also added some new lines. So they've added two other lines. One is a 2 gigabyte $45 version of the Raspberry Pi 4 and a 4 gigabyte $55 version of the Raspberry Pi 4. So the $55, the 4 gigabyte version, that's the one I am super, super interested in. Now, I have heard of some uh, overheating issues with this particular version for the five, the five or 4 gigabyte version, uh, but if you put it in a case and the, there's some of these cases have heat sinks with them. Like, for example, if you get a flirt case, not only are they really nice looking, they also have like a heat sink thing associated to them. And uh, they also keep it so that it, it can cool down a little bit because it doesn't need to, you know, it's it's not using the full thing because of that heat sink thing. So there are options to address that overheating issue. But at the same time, it's not overheating to the point of like fire. It's just ordering overheating to the point of it gets a little... Um, it gets a little hot to the touch. So, but at the same time, four gigabytes of RAM, a much beefier processor with two uh, HDMI ports and all, and a USB Type C and all this stuff and an Ethernet or a gigabit Ethernet kind of makes sense that we use a little bit more power, but it's still not a ton of power. It's just that there's some, a little bit of overheating issues. But at the same time, I'm still incredibly excited for it, especially, you know, with a case, it's going to be make it, make it reasonable that it's not going to be a big, as big a deal. But I'm so so excited about this thing. I don't have one, and they're sold out right now. And every day I go and check, and they're still sold out, unfortunately, at least in the U.S. I mean, there's some uh, places that you can get it in the EU or in the U.K. That's a lot easier. But for some reason in the U.S., it's been sold every time I checked. I mean, not some reason. I get it. It's a, it's a Raspberry Pi 4. I get that. It's a 4-gig version of that. So uh, it's also cool to check, uh, worth noting that the Pi uh, Raspbian operating system has also been upgraded and rebased to Debian 10 Buster. So this particular version comes with some fixes and improvements and tweaks to the hardware and all that other support and everything. So that's really cool too. And uh, just want to let you know before we move on, that we're going to have an episode. The next episode of Destination Linux is going to have a conversation about the Raspberry Pi 4 because, as I said, in the UK, it's a, lot, it's a little easier to get access to it. And the Raspberry Pi 4 has been acquired by our resident Brit, Zeb. So we'll be discussing that on the show. So be sure to check that out when it comes out uh, this coming week. So in a couple days from the release of this episode, if you're a patron then check it out. The recording will be tomorrow. Uh, or if you're watching this as it's record, as it's already edited and published, then it already happened or it's going to happen today. Anyway, time management of is not even good. It's not a good thing for me in general, you know, to start doing like time travel as far as like when this is coming out, when I recorded, when they were going to record it, when that's coming. Anyway, Raspberry Pi four is awesome. I can't wait to check it out. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to make this monster, like media center thing with it because it's such a powerful thing. It's kind of like 
like the old Raspberry Pis can still do media centers pretty well, but with this one, I'm just, okay. Let's move on to the next topic. Up next in the show is an interesting new centralized blog system for the developers of the Linux kernel. So if you're not aware, there's actually been a lot of, uh, a lot of issues with Google Plus being killed. And one of those is not only that Google Plus was killed for a lot of people that they used it, for some reason they used it, but one of those groups of people that used Google Plus heavily was the Linux kernel developers. Uh, you, there's oftentimes we even see on this ep- this show that we would reference things that were posted on Google Plus by Linus Torvalds and the other people. So there's this is actually kind of uh, needed since Google Plus was killed. They decided to create a new blogging system called People.Kernel.org, and they're using this uh, software, this open source software called Write Freely to do it, and it is a very cool piece of software. What's really it's cool about Write Freely is that it is a uh, Activity Pub enabled federated platform, and they're actually using uh, a hosted version by Write.as, and I think Write.as is providing it for free as a service to the kernel project. Uh, but anyway, so the reason they chose Write freely to do it was because it runs on Linux, it's free software, it's federated with Activity Pub, it supports writing rich content using Markdown, and it offers command line publishing tools which all of these are very important things, and the command line stuff as well as the uh, markdown stuff is really cool. I mean, the ActivityPub is is also pretty interesting because it allows you to, for example, uh, subscribe to a blog post or a a developer on the people.kernel.org write freely instance through Mastodon as if it was like an RSS feed and just get updates to your Mastodon via this blog system. It's really cool that they're doing this because it allows us to have a single location to see what all is going on on the kernel and not only just the mailing list as well but on a blog form style which is really nice in many ways for the show because it allows me to display a nice looking blog on the video rather than the ridiculous mailing list things that are super dated. Uh, Anyway let's move on to the next topic. Up next in the show Ubuntu has reverted their decision on 32-bit packages. This is actually some really good news. I mean, technically, they haven't really reverted their decision. They've somewhat backtracked a little bit and done it like a compromise approach. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to address the previous episode from last week of This Week in Linux for episode 71, where I talked about this particular topic, and then like an hour later, Ubuntu announced that they're not going to be doing the thing that I was complaining about in the topic because it was a problem and now it's no longer that problem. So I do want to talk about a couple things with this particular topic because there are some things that came out that uh, afterwards, after reversion, that was really that was, I thought was interesting that I wanted to discuss. But first of all, I wanted to say good job to Canonical and Ubuntu for listening to the community. Now, uh, there are some people who said that they are uh, disappointed that they listened or whatever, you know, because of the outrage culture one or, you know, whatever nonsense. Uh, but I wanted to just say that was a good job that Ubuntu did listen to the community because a lot of corporations will make decisions and completely ignore uh, the response from the community and Canonical and Ubuntu are not doing that. So that is great that they did listen. Uh, the blog post reads, and I quote, Thanks to the huge amount of free of feedback this weekend from gamers, Ubuntu Studio, and the wine community, we will change our plan and build selected 32-bit i386 packages for Ubuntu 19.10 and 24, 20.04 LTS. 
So if you're curious about what the Ubuntu Studio was, uh, there were some issues with if they were to drop 32-bit packages that made breaks of the VST audio plugins. That would be definitely not very good for Ubuntu Studio. But the, so that's good for them that they're not, you know, that's not happening. They also say that we will be, we will put in place a community process to determine which 32-bit packages are needed to support legacy software and can add to that list post-release if we miss something that is needed. That's pretty cool, and that's a very important piece that last week I talked about the thing that they they should definitely get rid of 32-bit to a point, and that point is base libs. So essentially what they're saying here is that they are reverting the idea of like getting rid of 32-bit completely but they're not getting it rid of it entirely now. They're going to keep those base libs, which is fantastic. Now, which base libs they're going to keep is up to the community and you know, in a discussion to make sure that they're going to have everything that is necessary. And if they you know, for, miss something or whatever, they can go back and add it later, which is really, really important piece as well. That That's the number one thing I wanted to do is, is, is talk is say good job to Canonical and Ubuntu. Number two is regarding the public discussion without telling people the discussion is happening. That part's not so useful. So, first of all, good job, uh, uh, Ubuntu, for listening. Uh, Secondly, uh, not a good job by not telling people that this is is potential. You know, they didn't really tell enough people. For example, they, they say in their blog post, community discussions can sometimes take unexpected turns. And this is one of those. The question of support for 32-bit x86 has been raised and seriously discussed in the Ubuntu developer and community forum since 2014. That's how we make decisions. Okay. Well, this is a very important discussion. Whether you're going to drop an entire architecture is a very important discussion. So just by talking about it in your developer community in the sense of your forums or in your mailing list, that's not really enough to get the full um, Im- input and full community, full opinion of the community. You need to actually, you know, engage with the community in a much broader sense. For example, make a blog post. Put it on your forum like you did. Uh, make a tweet about it. Whatever. Anything that like that to get attention is what you should do. Not just keep it in your thing. Because, yes, 2014, you were talking about it, but that's not really the only place you should be talking about it. So, And also you were talking about not only just getting rid of 32-bit, but also the ISOs and that kind of thing. So many of those things, yes, you should. Like getting rid of the ISOs, totally in support of that. Get ridding, getting rid of the 32-bit uh, packages for most, like 90-90% of packages, totally support that. It's the base slips. You would have got that information previously if you gave it, you know. Anyway, let's just move on. Um, I've actually seen some other projects make this mistake in the sense of like, I, I actually talked about this problem in a talk that I gave at the Southeast Linux Fest conference about open source marketing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna actually upload that video to this channel uh, pretty soon. And this is where I give an example of where people were requesting input and receiving very little because they only requested it on their mailing list, like in, basically in like their own bubble, and therefore they're not gonna get a lot of response. Uh, but anyway, next up I want to talk about the uh, uh, this particular topic is the. Number third, the number three thing, the third, what? Number third, wow. <laughs> the number three thing I want to talk about is the response to the um, this particular news of them reverting it from podcasts and some blogs. There, There's a lot of weird things that people were saying in the sense of like that it was dumb or they wish they hadn't done it. Or in one case, they said it was foolishly backpedaling, which is just absurd. One of the things that people responded with is... Just someone who works at Valve said it. 
not Valve themselves. And that's no longer the case because they're, they're, what their point was is that I did say it on the show that it was just it was a tweet from a Valve developer. But that Valve developer is, is also an important person at Valve. So they're making this a statement. It could also still be an official statement. But they were saying because it was a tweet, it wasn't really a thing. And that same person posted on the steamcommunity.com website forums and also sticky did it to make sure that it is an official response. It is not just a tweet. So they got so the same person did go in and, and like the follow up does address as an official version a response from Valve. They because the 32 bit the 32 bit is not going to be completely going away for base libs. Uh, Valve hasn't has made an announcement that they're going to continue supporting Ubuntu as well. Uh, but we'll get to that more in the next topic. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about some more things such as the other suggestions that people gave, which is why not use a snap or flat pack. And there are multiple reasons of why not to use them, at least not right now. And that sense that they still need development as far as like uh, improvement for optimization for performance. So, and also there are going to be a lot of overhead for the runtimes to be used. Uh, games would also need to be using them in some way for the format. So there's a little bit of complications added. And, and in some ways they are going to be doing some kind of containerization in the future for making this work, but right now it's just not ready. So that's one of the reasons why their announcement was bad is because they only gave them basically like four months to get it ready. And that's just a lot of work in a very little bit of time. So the next topic there, or next reason people said why this is, why there is dumb that they're reverting it was why not use a PPA? And some have asked, why can't they just ship the 1804 libraries in a 1910 and beyond via PPA? Well, the reason is because there's a problem just by doing that. Um, apt requires that these versions have the same version uh, for 32-bit and 64-bit packages. Otherwise, it won't install the 32-bit packages. So this mis- mismatch of versions from 1804 to 1910 would make it not work anyway. So because they wouldn't work with the different versions, you still need to make sure that the infrastructure that is used to build the 64-bit is also used for the 32-bit and have the same versions at the same time. So essentially, the, the infrastructure of Launchpad would still be required. And the next thing that I heard was people saying, 32-bit is ancient. It's been over 15 years. Let's just let it go. And I agree with that completely because it is ancient. You should They should definitely get rid of 32-bit for the most part. Get rid of all the packages that don't need it, like a browser, get rid of the ISO, which they did, and just keep the binaries. The libraries, or the base libs, I mean, are the things that are the most important. So they should keep those, which is what they are doing, at least for up till 2004. So for a little bit more time, that's another reason why this is good. Um, Mac is dropping 32-bit, so what's the big deal? That's the next one I heard. And that one's such a weird one. So... Why, like, just because one thing's doing it, we got, you know, whatever. But the the thing that really makes me laugh about that one is because the people who are using the Mac as a reference point are ignoring the biggest difference between Mac and Ubuntu doing it. Not necessarily because, you know, Mac controls the platform and et cetera, and Ubuntu doesn't, but just the fact that Mac announced that they were going to get rid of 32-bit, they announced this in June of 2017. It is now June of 2019. That's two years. It still hasn't even been done yet. It won't be done until sometime this fall or maybe this winter, depending on when the next version of Mac comes out. So by the time it does come out, there will be two and a half years of lead time before that actually happens from their announcement. 
the approach that Canonical and Ubuntu took was three and a half months. Or in Valve had a little bit extra information, so four months. So there's a di- big difference between two and a half years and four months. Uh, one is, is somewhat reasonable, even if not that much time. And the other one is completely ridiculous. So it's good that they are reverting it. So that the, this, the whole point is that all these different examples are people who are saying that it's not good. It is good. Uh, and the last thing I want to talk about is another reason that people said that this was a dumb idea for to revert it was people just love to hate on Ubuntu and Canonical. Now, I wanted to put this part in the the topic for the show because, well, yeah, that's actually true. I agree with this, and it's completely true that it, and absolutely certain that a lot of the time people, for some reason, are very loud about their hatred of Canonical and of Ubuntu. Even though it's not a very large amount of people, they're very, very loud about doing it. So um, it's just weird because I did want to cover it because this is the first time I actually felt, what are you doing, Canonical? Like, this is the first time any of these examples was like, wait, what? Because the other ones people said, like, for example, people were making comments on the, the YouTube channel for this particular, and as also on other places like Reddit and, other, and various other places about how Canonical is making, it's just another example of making bad decisions or the dreaded not invented here syndrome complaint. So they would make references like Mirror, Unity, Snap, and Upstart. Um, so I briefly want to explain why none of those are fair complaints in comparison to this one. I should probably do a video on this topic in general, but... Uh, for now, let's just do it here. So, for example, first off, Mir. People said that uh, they, Mir was a terrible decision. Well, actually, at the time that they made the decision to make Mir, Wayland was, well, not the most usable. You could argue that it's still not usable because it doesn't have its own compositor, so every DE still needs a compositor. For example, Gnome made Muttered be the compositor for Wayland, and uh, KDE Plasma is using KWIN. But there are other DEs that don't have the resources to build their own compositor, so they don't have one because Weston is a reference compositor, not an actual like use and production compositor. So there's arguments that that's a problem too. However, Mir's not dead because Canonical decided to just convert Mir into a compositor for Wayland, which is actually pretty cool because it allows you to have these DEs be able to use a compositor without having to have the process of or the development technical debt of having to maintain their own compositor. The next one is Unity. This one's actually kind of my favorite one because as far as the this is not really a fair complaint because people would like why didn't you not pick GNOME? Well GNOME at the time was a giant mess and even made people so angry that they would make blog posts about how they hate it and they're not going to use it anymore. And specifically, Linus Torvalds even said that. And he switched to XFCE. And he's now back on GNOME, but it's it was it took years for that to happen. So they couldn't rely on GNOME at the time. And, this, and the thing with, with KDE Plasma is that uh, Plasma was going from 4 to 5, which, by the way, Plasma 4, it's, it wasn't called KDE 4. It's actually Plasma 4. Plasma was not... Plasma 4 was the first version in 2008, but they were transitioning from Plasma 4 to Plasma 5 around the time they were making decision. Uh, well, actually, they weren't transitioning then. They were deciding when to transition. So Canonical had to choose. GNOME can't really use it because it's a hot mess. Plasma, they can't really use it because uh, they're about to be transi- starting a transition phase from Plasma 4 to Plasma 5, so it's not really reliable for them to use that. 
when they have to do so much afterwards. And then they decided we're going to use Unity. And then people might go, well, what about the other options? I've heard people say, why don't they use Mate? Why didn't they use Cinnamon? Why didn't they use Budgie? Well, none of those existed. That's a good reason not to use them. They didn't exist. And then the other thing about uh, LXDE and XFCE did exist. Well, yeah, but both of those still use GTK2, which is deprecated and therefore not an option. What about LXQ? Didn't exist. So as you can see, the only option they really had was to create their own and therefore Unity. I personally didn't use Unity. I thought Unity was a fantastic DE, but it wasn't for me. There are certain things that I wanted to do that it wouldn't let me do. So I didn't like that part. But at the same time, it was a very solid DE. It's actually good, you know? The weird thing about the Unity hatred was that Unity was pretty good. In fact, the the, the global menu was really cool. The HUD was awesome. The local integrated menus that they had towards the end was fantastic. There was a lot of cool stuff with Unity. And I don't really get why people hated it. And it's a shame that it's gone. That's why I wanted them to use Plasma. Not because I wanted Plasma for them to use Plasma. I wanted them to make Unity via Plasma, which would have been awesome. So the hatred for Canonical started with Unity because people were like, how dare you do your own thing? Because I remember 10.04 and 10.10 were considered like, you know, one of the best distros to use back in the day. I remember that. People uh, were praising it, how good it was. And then they announced Unity and 11.04, and people lost their minds. Now, to be fair, Unity when 11.04 was terrible. And so was it, it was in 11.10, it was also terrible. But in 12.04, it was solid. It was surprisingly solid for only having a year and a half of development. So the fact that people like hated them for that is ridiculous because it took like five years for GNOME 3 to be reasonably usable. And it only took a year for Unity. That's impressive. So, and also the same thing with Snaps and Upstart. People were like complaining about how uh, people, like, uh, my, another thing is really interesting about how people love to hate on Canonical without taking into account the actual history and the context of what they're saying. So, for example, I've heard, well, why did they make Snaps? Because Flatpaks already existed. Actually, Snaps were before Flatpaks. Not by a long amount of time, but they were before Flatpaks. So, to say that is kind of ridiculous. But I think it just goes on. Basically, the only time that I've ever had an, ex- an opinion of what are you doing here was this 32-bit thing. So this whole hatred of Canonical is weird because why hate them for making free software, right? I this particular thing is also not worth hating, but it is definitely worth being concerned about and letting them know that you have a problem with it. So it's not really an outrage culture or you know people of Canonical being controlled by the outrage culture of the community or whatever. It's because it's a necessity that it exists for at least a certain amount of time and at least the lead time be more than four months. So, this is a very long um, segment. I didn't actually plan to make it that long. And the next topic is actually somewhat related, so let's just go to it. Up next in the show is related to the Ubuntu 32-bit packages thing, uh, and that is Valve's official statement about the future Linux support and really their commitment to Linux. So, in the statement was written by uh, Pierre Lou on the Steam community forum, they say, following the announcement, we made a statement that Ubuntu 19.10 would be, wouldn't be officially supported or recommended to our users going forward. As the Ubuntu project indicated, they let us know that their intent and walked us through the, the details earlier the month in that month, 
which was much appreciated, we don't think it's unreasonable that they would want to take steps that are in the best interest of the project. That being said, we don't think it's an especially positive move for Steam and game-oriented customers who rely on this support. To provide some background, support for 32-bit libraries is required in order to run not only the Steam client, but also the thousands of games available on Steam that only support 32-bit environments. Enabling the Steam client to run in pure 64-bit environments, while feasible, would leave the vast majority of the current Steam library inaccessible to such users without an additional compatibility layer. Ensuring that all gamers or all games a user owns remain fully playable wherever possible is a core principle of Steam, and we don't believe any solution that arbitrarily splits a user's library would be acceptable. See, I completely agree with that, and that makes sense why they made the decision. They also go on to say that they are doing some other things looking into other options of how their approaches are done. So specifically they say, Steam already bundles a lot of dependencies needed by 32-bit games. And it currently relies on some key components being available on the host system, like 32-bit glibc, Elf Loader, Mesa drivers, NVIDIA graphics drivers, libraries, and some others. We've been investigating ways to avoid these system dependencies for a while now by looking into light containerization and other approaches. This is actually really good news because it shows that they're not trying to keep the 32-bit packages baseless forever in order to do this, but at some point they plan to transition to something else, but at the moment they don't have time to do that. And I and, and my point, my entire point with this issue was that they didn't give enough time. If they said, hey, for the next, you know, you have five years, you have three to five years, you have two years, you have something more than four months to do this, that's a reasonable statement. Even if they, you know, ask for opinions, even if people didn't like it, you know, five years is a reasonable amount of time to give people to develop a solution. Four months, not so much. Anyway, also, this is really good because Valve announced something that's very good for Valve, very good for Linux, and I am excited to see what happens with it. So first, let's just go ahead and talk about the quote. Uh, the Linux landscape has changed dramatically since we released the initial version of Steam for Linux, and as such, we are rethinking how we want to approach distribution support going forward. There are, se there are several dis distributions on the market today that offer a great gaming desktop experience, such as Arch Linux, Pop! OS, Manjaro, Fedora, and many others. We'll be working closer with many more distribution maintainers in the future. And if you're working on such a distribution and don't feel your project has a direct line of contact with us, by all means, have a representative reach out directly. So, awesome, because one, they are not just having a, a recommendation and focusing on Ubuntu. Uh, this, is, this is awesome because it allows more community input and collaboration making the whole system better and the whole uh, proton structure better and the whole wine structure better and all this stuff. It also means that other distributions are going to benefit from this uh, you know, uh, heavier commitment to the Linux platform that Valve is doing and that they are wanting to have direct uh, representative communication with as many people of any as many projects as possible so that they can have the offer the best support for the platform, which is amazing, which is awesome that Valve is doing that because Valve has proven many, many times that Linux is an important platform for them. And so, and, on, and not only to talk about that, Valve also recently announced that they have uh, hired some people to work on things that are not necessarily related to, for, to Steam. Like, for example, they have an, a guy working on KWIN for the KDE project, which is really interesting. Um, and they also, and of course, they have the Vulkan support and the, you know, the Proton uh, development they ha they're doing. 
that is not necessarily specifically only for wine or only for steam. It can be used for other things, like you know, wine applications and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of work that Valve is doing, and I appreciate the amount of effort they're putting in. So this re- this reversion is definitely a good thing as well for the Ubuntu users, and you know, indirectly benefits the rest of the ecosystem too because it gives them more, you know, gives them incentive to look elsewhere as you know as well. So that's really cool, and I'm glad to see that they're you know re reiterating their commitment to Linux and the Linux platform. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to the blog post of this particular Valve announcement in, or not really blog post, forum post, whatever, in the show notes below. Another awesome thing that Valve is doing that is both highly anticipated and frightening for wallets is the Steam Summer Sale is back, and there's a lot of cool stuff in here. So, for example, are some games that uh, you might want to check out are Dying Light, Doom, the Borderlands franchise, Hollow Knight, XCOM, Rocket League, of course. All of these are on sale, as well as a game I recently discovered called Super Inefficient Golf, which is ridiculous. The name is, is silly, but also the game itself is pretty ridiculous in the fact that you play, it's like putt-putt golf, essentially, except you don't have a putter. You have basically C4 detonation like explosions to control where your ball goes. Sure, why not? So if you're interested in checking that out, that's on sale too. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of cool stuff that's coming out. Uh, it's on sale right now for the Steam sale. So I am excited, especially considering there's a lot of games that are be available on Proton because they have this. Is, I th- this is the first time that Proton has been available for the summer sale. So I'm even more excited to see what all is available that is on sale for Proton. However. I do want to point out that this particular um, uh, link in the show notes is not an affiliate link. It's actually a link to the Steam sale that specifically uh, highlights Linux support for native Linux games. Uh, there's not Proton. I don't think there's a Proton link uh, filter yet. I'll look into that if there is. But right now, it's just uh, for Steam Linux. And so if you are uh, interested, I'll have a link in the show notes. And that link will go directly to a search a pre-filtered search results on Steam for games that are currently on sale in the summer sale and are specifically for Linux. It's a lot easier to do it this way because, well, the regular way has a ton of other games that you can't play. So, uh, or, you know, without dual booting, I guess. And and this this uh, link is tuxdigital.com slash Steam sale. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes below if you'd like to check it out. I look forward to it, especially with the whole new Proton uh, part of it, a part of the summer sale. So I, I look forward to not liking the amount of money I'm spending on these games. Next in the show is some more good news, and this one is from Mozilla. Mozilla has announced the Firefox preview for Android. So Firefox preview is kind of like a new version of their browser for Android. Firefox Focus was an attempt to create a private browser within a not-so-private operating system, a.k.a. Android. But they've actually decided that they're not going to continue working on the Focus. They're going to actually switch their Focus to working on a project that kind of merges the privacy and security features of Focus to a full-fledged mobile web browser. And that is what Firefox Preview is. So eventually it's going to become Firefox, but right now it's the preview version. So in addition to having more security and privacy built into their desktop browser, they're also stating that they will be that they have a very fast mobile browser. They say it's actually their fastest yet. I've, I've actually tried the Firefox Preview browser on my phone, and it's way better 
Not only is it better as far as speed, it's better in function and layout. It feels better. For example, if you want to refresh, you don't have to like hit, you know, move your finger all the way to the top, then wait for them and move it down and hit it. It's just at the very bottom right. You just tap it twice and it refreshes. It's They've actually improved it heavily in that respect. Also, they also re- improved the layout in general and the coloring. So you can now have a dark theme if you prefer a dark theme, which I do and which I'm using. So... I am happy, even though the Firefox preview is still in like a beta form. It's I, I'm I've already switched it to my default browser on my phone, so that's awesome. Uh, anyway, if you would like to check out the Firefox preview, I'll have a link to the blog post as well as the link on the Play Store if you if you'd like to install it. Uh, but you know, keep in mind that this is a beta, so if you or at least an early access, so if you would like to try it out uh, and you do try it out. Uh, be sure to report any issues or bugs that you experience so that they can help improve it so that the next that the stable version of it is as best as it can be. So, yeah. Up next in the show is another piece of news from Mozilla, and that is they have instituted a new uh, approach to blocking or at least, you know, combating tracking and, pri- and uh, privacy violations. So, Mozilla is continuing to take the lead in privacy and security for browsers. They have a new project to help confuse advertisers as you prepare for your migration to Firefox. So, for example, along with the the no tracking and privacy tools, Mozilla has created this new tool called Track This. And you you go to this website and then it will open 10 or no, sorry. It'll open 100 tabs of random searches to confuse advertisers of who you really are. And they have multiple different profiles of what you could, you know, open. So, you could pick from a profile to confuse pesky advertisers into thinking you're someone you're not. And these profiles include Hyperbeast, Filthy Rich, Doomsday, and Influencer. They, they they all mean different things, so you could actually load up all four of these and have 400 different... I mean, I wouldn't say do it at the same time, but you can definitely confuse them, super confuse them with loading up all 400, you know, because that would be a ton of useless data for them to have. You know, as a targeted ad start to change in a few days, attempting to sell you stuff based on all these random, you know, random useless content you're throwing at them. I think this is pretty cool that they're doing this because it is something that allows a lot easier way to confuse the systems that already have the tracking of you, and that's pretty cool. So if you'd like to learn more about this, I have a link to it in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is also brought to you by the Tux Digital Patrons. Now, specifically, these are people who are contributing to the channel on a monthly basis, whether it's a dollar or more or whatever you whatever they're doing. It's fantastic, but they're doing it on Tux Digital's sponsors account, which is tuxdigital.com slash sponsors, and also on the Patreon at tuxdigital.com slash Patreon. Now, this is a very important thing for the channel. If you're not a patron and you'd like to become one, it would be very much appreciative, uh, even if it's just a dollar a month on Patreon or $3 a month on sponsors. Uh, that's because of the transaction fee system of the difference. Uh, but any, any amount at all is incredibly appreciated because it allows me to spend more time creating this show and putting more effort into the show, whether that's getting new equipment or whether that's spending more time to create new techniques in order to develop the show and in order to record the show and edit it and all that stuff. It's very much appreciative, and if you can spare any amount of money, I'll specifically spare. If it's if you're if you need the money, don't do that. Uh, but if you can spare the money, I'd be very appreciative if you were to do that and become a patron 
of the channel uh, and of this this uh, this week in Linux podcast. So if you'd like to do that, you can go to tuxchill.com slash Patreon or tuxchill.com slash sponsors to become a patron. And also be more, I just want to be clarifying something. I've had some reports that people are, are confused about why there's this Stripe account system in the sponsors settings. That's only for creators. You can completely ignore that part entirely. Uh, just all you need to do is use the other parts of Stripe, not the Stripe account. You don't need that. Uh, anyway, just want to clarify that in the show. So again, if you'd like to become a patron, it'd be very much appreciative. And uh, you can go to touchdoodles.com slash sponsors or touchdoodles.com slash Patreon. So yeah, let's get to the rest of the show. Up next in the show is the latest release of Cody, which is uh, the code name Leia 18.3 has been released. And this is not a huge update. It's actually just mostly maintenance updates and uh, some other things. But they did add some cool support for D- DTS HD audio tracks and also some additional search features. They've also improved a lot of uh, performance. They fixed some nasty memory leaks. And they've also improved some functionality overall. Uh, the reason I wanted to... Uh, promote this one particular release is because it's a great example for something you could put on your new Raspberry Pi 4, which is awesome. So, Cody, or specifically LibraElec, LibraElec.tv is a really great uh, implementation of Cody as an operating system, and it's really cool because it's basically just an OS for Cody, but you get all the benefits of having a nice, late, um, optimized operating system for using Kodi and also has good settings that make it easier to configure the whole system and everything. So LibraElec, Kodi, Raspberry Pi 4, awesome combination. There you go. I'll have a link in the show notes to both of those, actually, to the LibraElec as well. Next up in the show is a really interesting piece of software that I just realized existed. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't see it before, but this is really cool. And it's called DrawPile. DrawPile. 2.1.11 was released recently. And this is, there's a lot of improvements to it. I'll get to them in a second, but I want to talk about what it is first. So this is a free software that allows multiple users to sketch on the same canvas simultaneously in a collaborative online drawing thing. So it's, it's also open source of course, because it's free software, but it's also open source. In addition to some bug fixes, they've actually improved some uh, new features in the sense they've made it possible to detach the chat box and have it a separate window so you can have a full screen of the canvas. And it's really cool because it allows you to not only have like a server, like for example, like a Docker container on a server that you connect to and do collaborative drawing, you can actually use your own computer as the server that people connect to. Now, that is both good and bad because I would say that it's it's cool. If, if you know the people you're working with, then it's not a bad idea because you give them your public IP address for your computer and then, you know, I wouldn't, don't put that out in the public like that. Don't just put it out in the server and let everybody just connect to you. That's not a good idea. But if you have people you want to work with who are like at your job and whatever, that's totally understandable and not, a, not as big of a problem. But I would still suggest having a server of some sorts, perhaps on DigitalOcean, and you set up a Docker container on the DigitalOcean droplet with this draw pile thing and have a really cool solution. If you'd like to learn more about this, it's pretty awesome. Um, I, there's some videos on YouTube that like demonstrate how it works, but I think this is a really cool program that I'm surprised I didn't know existed. Uh, but it's really cool. It's kind of like uh, imagine having like uh, GIMP, 
where you can draw on the same canvas at the same time with other people. And that is what DrawPile is. So if you'd like to learn more, I have a link to DrawPile latest blog post in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some not so good information. I mean, theoretically could be, I guess, but it's Microsoft, so probably not. Anyway, Microsoft is seeking to join the Linux distros mailing list. Now, for those who are not sure or aware, the Linux distro mailing list is a private uh, mailing list that is used for Linux distros to coordinate efforts on security issues, private conversations between distros, and other inside information. So we all know that Microsoft loves Linux, of course. You know, they've, they've been saying that for a long time, so of course it's true. Anyway, uh, Sasha Levin, I think that's how to say it, uh, works uh, for Microsoft, has made a case stating that they, um, they should be accepted into the terms of joining the mailing list uh, because of their con- contributing code and fixes and like the way they work on the uh, Linux kernel, the work they've done on Azure Sphere, and as well as the WSL2. So this is the case that's being made for Microsoft to be joining the mailing list. It kind of makes sense why Microsoft is looking to be added to this list, assuming they continue to contribute their patches and fixes back to Linux overall. Uh, we just have to accept this might be a sign that Microsoft does love Linux. Or, or not. So it's hard for me to really fully accept that Microsoft loves Linux just because Satya Nadella has taken over the reins. It does seem that they are more open to caring about Linux, but they still seem to only care about Linux when it benefits them. Because, you know, Azure Sphere is not going to be used by most people. Most people don't care. Yes, it is technically a Linux distribution, but it doesn't. no one mostly cares. Um, WSL2 is not a Linux distribution. It's taking Linux benefits and putting it in Windows. That's not a Linux distribution. So I would go with no. Linux kernel contributions, yes, that's true. That's good. But is it really worth being a part of the Linux distro mailing list? I'd say no, because it's not really a Linux distro. If they made a real Linux distro, or they contributed to Linux distros in general, or they did something that actually was a sign that they actually cared, you know, such as making Microsoft Office work on Linux platform, even if it was still proprietary, even if it just worked in general, that would prove that they cared. But really, they care about what benefits them is what it feels like, you know. I mean, it does feel like they have changed. I, I, do, I do believe that they have changed because Satya Nadella at least does some things that are you know, beneficial to Linux overall and the, in the overall open source, open source community in the sense of like open sourcing.net and making SQL server work on Linux. There's, there are some things that they have done. So that's, you know, good job on those, but at the same time it's windows and even people who are fans of windows like Paul Therott on windows weekly, he made some interesting comments related to a sit down talk that Bill Gates participated in and that it was like a, a like an event or conference thing or whatever. And in the in the conversation, they asked Bill Gates what did he think was the biggest mistake that he ever made or that Microsoft made. And he said it was not to prop up Windows to be the solution to battle iOS and outdo Android. And essentially, basically, he, without saying specifically these words, copy iOS and make a copy of iOS. So... Uh, the thing that's interesting and the reason I brought it up is because Paul Therott is uh, from Windows Weekly said he countered what Bill Gates said and said the biggest mistake is this guy never invented anything. All he did was copy and steal from other people and then he just forced them out of the market. And 
Bill Gates kind of admitted something somewhat of this, saying that the the in the conference interview, he admitted that the culture at Microsoft when he was there was horrible, giving excuses that they were in their 20s and didn't have kids, so they didn't have perspective to not be horrible to their competition. So I, I realize that Microsoft is not being ran by the same people, and it has a lot of... And for example, uh, Sasha Levin is very new to Microsoft. has only been there for like a year and a half. So that person is not applying, is not like relevant to the decisions of old. And Satya Nadella is also not a part of the decisions from old. But at the same time, it is still Microsoft. So giving them access to the Linux distros mailing list might be a little bit too much. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, maybe I'm just too, uh, unwilling to take in consideration that maybe Microsoft has changed. I don't know. I don't believe they have. They'd have to prove it to me by doing something that actually benefits the Linux ecosystem and not just themselves before I will believe that they have changed. But that's just me. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular topic, I'll have a link to the Register article about this, as well as an interesting follow-up from the TechRights website about this uh, as well. So I'll have a link to both of those in the show notes. So this past episode of Destination Linux, we had a discussion about whether it's time to take a look at Wayland again, and if it is ready for us to, as a community, to, to, to start backing it more. And if you're interested in that topic, then be sure to check out the episode 127 of Destination Linux. I'll have it linked in the show notes. Uh, but following that discussion, there was some interesting Wayland news, and it's being reported around Red Hat and Fedora. But the reports I've seen so far are missing a bit of context. So first of all, this is what the report is kind of saying. Uh, it's, it's a quote from this blog post that I have displayed on the video and now I've linked in the show notes. But it says, once we are done with the Wayland improvements, we expect Xorg to go into hard maintenance mode fairly quickly. Now, here's the part that's what I'm saying is that a lot of people are saying that it's going to happen fairly quickly and that's not necessarily the case. They say that, that the reality is that the Xorg is basically maintained by us and thus we stop paying attention to it there is unlikely to be any major new releases coming out and there might even be some bit rot setting in over time we will keep an eye on it as we will want to ensure Xorg stays supportable until the end of the rail 8 life cycle at a minimum but this will be a friendly notice for everyone who rely on the work we do maintaining the Linux graphics stack get onto Wayland and that is where the future is so they're kind of implying that uh, I mean, Red Hat does con is, does maintain Xorg these days, and um, they're saying that they're it's fairly quickly going to be going into maintenance mode once these things are in place, so that it can be. Now, the thing is, is that people are saying I've seen a couple blog posts talk about how that it's going soon that Wayland is going to be you know, the main focus, and that Xorg is going to be going to maintenance maintenance mode, a hard maintenance mode, very very quickly. However. There are multiple things that need to be done before that happens. So, for example, uh, this blog post also says the single biggest goal currently is removing is fully removing our Windows our X windowing system dependency. So, this is those for those wondering why this is taking so much time. For 20 years, developers could safely assume they were writing atop of X, and that requires refactoring everything needed to remove any code that makes the that assumption that is running uh, that it is a running on top of X. So it has been a big major effort. They say that mostly this work has, is, is done for the shell itself, but there are a few things left in regards to GNOME setting daemon where they need to expel the X dependency. 
It says we are optimistic that we can declare this work done within a within uh, within the next GNOME release or maybe two. So GNOME 3.34 or maybe 3.36. Now this is interesting because it's not going to be fairly soon. It is relatively speaking. So uh, it will still be kind of soon in the sense of how development works because you have to make a path roadmap and then eventually you get there. But uh, I would say that within the next year. It might happen, but more than likely, a little bit beyond that. Because the next version of 3.34 is coming out in September. So that's like three months away. But maybe this, this Damon's uh, development will be done by 3.36, they're saying. So that's maybe nine months. So that's that's nine months, but they also have to have having the X Wayland support. Uh, they're also saying that they're working on having X Wayland support for X applications running as root under X Wayland. They said they don't necessarily consider this as a good idea to do, but because X worked that way, people are going to expect it to be available under X Wayland as well. So they're still working on that. They're also working on improving improving SDL Wayland support in regards to how it deals with scaling of lower resolution games. And then there's also some work on the NVIDIA binary driver support, which actually kind of is somewhat done, but they need NVIDIA to kind of, to review the code and to support it into their drivers. So all of these things, once those are done, then XOR can be turned into maintenance mode fairly quickly. So that's the, the fairly quickly part is after these things are done, then it can be done. So I just wanted to be clarifying that if you did see a blog post saying that this, it's not necessarily going to be happening anytime soon. At least a year is what I would say, but probably longer than that. But anyway, if you have to learn more about this, I have a link to the blog post about uh, this blog post from the GNOME developer. As, as Actually, there's also some other things that are interesting because there's also like Pipewire and some Flatpak stuff and some other things in this blog post that are worth checking out too. Up next in the show is the RPCS3 or Play- PlayStation 3 emulator for Linux. I actually didn't really know that this existed until recently, similar to Drawpile, uh, but this has been around since 2011. And this is an experimental open source uh, PlayStation 3 emulator and debugger written in C++ for Linux and for Windows. It has minimum system requirements of 2 gigs of RAM, OpenGL 4.3 compatible GPU, and a 64-bit compatible processor or capable processor. And also having support for Windows, Linux, and uh, BSD 64-bit. Uh, that's actually not like promoted, but it's in their system requirements, so it's possible that you might be able to play it on BSD if you have that. And they also need a, a specific PS3 update file, uh, but that they they explain in their quick start guide how to get that. Uh, but they do say that's the minimum. The recommended is having eight gigabytes of RAM or, or more or greater, having a Intel quad core Haswell or above, and an AMD Hexacore Ryzen or you know Hexacore or and above. Uh, they also say that you need to have a GPU that is compatible with Vulkan. So any new AMD or NVIDIA card would be compatible with Vulkan. So they, that's what they sort of recommend as the system requirement. Like you can get away with using the minimum one, but you should probably use the other one. Uh, but this is really cool. There's some videos that ex- like show the the uh, how well the games play, and you know it's pretty cool that you can even do this uh, at this point because you know I didn't expect PlayStation 3s to allow you to because I assume there's some kind of DRM or whatever on them, and there are some issues with that in the sense of having support for games that you own and wanting to play them in, from the disc. 
there are some issues there, but when you port and you kind of, if you copy them into your computer and then play them from the computer, then they typically work uh, depending on what kind of Blu-ray player you have. And there's like specific uh, way that these are read. And anyway, just check out the frequently asked questions for more on that. Uh, but this is pretty cool. And a lot of the video, a lot of the games look like they play pretty good and they actually have support for local multiplayer, not online multiplayer because that essentially that requires the PlayStation network. And I don't know if that will ever happen, but uh, it's still interesting that this exists because I mean, most of the time people want to play uh, emulated games. They're typically not playing online, but this is really cool, and I am really excited to check it out because I actually do have well, a combination of actually the minimal and and the uh, recommended. So we'll see how that well that works. So I might do a video on it someday. If you'd like to learn more about this particular emulator, I have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is another uh, deal that is currently going on, which is a humble bundle, but it's a book bundle. Uh, we actually talked about a book bundle last week. This is another one. And this one's a lot different because the other one was just about programming. This one is a combination of programming and some other stuff, like some, like, this way, how does it get to, into, how to start your tech career. And, like, learning programming is one of them. Learning different types of technology is another one, including, for example, uh, bit, uh, Bitcoin or blockchain is uh, involved in here. There's a book that explains how blockchain works and that kind of thing. Uh, this is a pretty interesting bundle as well. If you'd like to check it out, I have a link in the show notes. And also wanting to let you know that this uh, link in the show notes is an affiliate link to the Humble Bundle. So if you do purchase this bundle through this link, uh, which I would appreciate if you do, is a it will provide a small commission from Humble, Humble Bundle to the Tux Digital channel and this uh, podcast this week in Linux. Uh, not very much, but you know every little bit counts. So if you do like to uh, do decide to buy any of the books here or buy this bundle, uh, they a small percentage will be going through it if you use that link. So yep. I have a link to this and in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, sponsors, Patreon, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Private Internet Access, Amazon, and others by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. We also were joined by some special guests, uh, surprise guests, in fact, uh, due to some issues with Noah and his hotel room at the, there during that episode. So be sure to check that out. It's a very interesting episode. And just a reminder, the show is live usually every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week, including this week. It was on Saturday, uh, you know. So every week, Saturday, usually. So anyway, thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.